to this week's episode of the show before the show podcast. Um, one of my favorite podcasts, my favorite uh, person in a lot of ways, Conan O'Brien. I love Conan O'Brien needs a friend. And in recent weeks, they've been uh, Matt Gorley and Sonam Obsession, his two cohorts on the podcast, have been ripping on Conan for how weird he gets when he starts the show. And I was like, I bet Sam and Ben have wanted to do that with me for every single episode ever. When I'm like, hey there, welcome in, folks. And this week's episode. <laughs> Uh, I don't know how to start podcasts. Uh, my name is Tyler Ron. I'm here with Sam Dykstra and Benjamin Hill. You would think after like 300 and how many episodes of this have we done? A lot. Uh, this is episode 312. You'd think I would have gotten some sort of formulaic open down, but no. Nope. Well, I mean, I honestly, when you were saying like one of my favorite podcasts, which I thought you were going to say is this podcast, but I'll no. move past that. No, I don't listen to it. One of my favorite on people in the world, which I thought you were going to say was me, but no, no you moved on and, no. and said the other Irish guy from Massachusetts. Right, um, right, right. Just the, the one other one. The one other one. Um, well, I'm not related to. We're not all related. But yeah, no, you just completely wanted jumped right to Conan, which I can't believe. I did. I his, I did. his interview with Obama, who we have not had on the podcast. We have not had on the show. Shockingly, we have had... is always zero, open. We've had zero it's former perfect. presidents. But, you yeah. know, yeah, if, uh, if any former pres who, uh, you know, is a White Sox fan, wants to come on the show. I'm sure he's making the podcast rounds, it seems like. Uh, also, there's another The Show Before the Show connection. You in the background of your shot, uh, Samuel P. Dykstra, have Polar Park, the home of the Worcester Red Sox. That's where Conan, I believe Conan's mom's family is from Worcester? Yes. Um, yeah, so there's a, there's a connection there. And Ben, I'm sure this is all thrilling to you. <laughs> oh, it's awesome. I love it. You know, I do like Conan O'Brien, so any Conan talk is uh... fantastic. Is, is fine with me he's a successful podcast opening host and and you all are stuck with me so we welcome you into this week's episode of the show before the show where we talk all things minor league baseball in the official podcast of minor league baseball tyler mon sam dykstra benjamin hill we are uh, into another week closer and closer to the midway point of this minor league season as crazy as it is we're already over a full month into the uh altered minor league campaign and uh things have been going all right we're seeing prospects moving all over the place uh i just got back from watching julio rodriguez decimate international pitching over uh, a week in florida at the olympic qualifiers and um he and his team are on the final qualifier later this month you guys uh all kinds of stuff going as we continue progressing further into the season and i feel like right out of the gate it's a good time to just point out how delightfully smooth this season has gone so far from a minor league baseball perspective. I think there was like a lot of apprehension before the season started of like, all right, the pandemic, what if there are game reschedulings? What about vaccinations? What about capacity and all of that? I know we got a lot of ballparks that are returning or have returned to hundred percent capacity schedule wise. Things have progressed pretty normally across the minor leagues. Um, this has been pretty great. And Ben, I know you talk so often with people around the industry. Is there a sense of, I don't want to say surprise, but maybe just ultimate relief over how things have gone so far to this point. I definitely think there's relief uh, because it could have been a lot worse given all the uncertainty that went this season, especially after no 2020 and the lingering uh, concerns uh, related to the pandemic, of course. Um, but I also feel like a lot of teams I've talked to are looking at 2021 uh, combined as I don't want to quite say a mulligan year, but a year to kind of get through in with the new organization, reorganization, of the entire minor leagues, a lot of new relationships, ways of doing things that combined with, um, you know, just taking such a massive hit in 2020 
and not being able to, you know, put have in a lot of cases full staffing and uh, a normal budget going into 2021 and not knowing the extent that fans would come back. I think like for a lot of us, 2021 is on a certain level a year to get through, even though it's going better than it could be. I think the real optimism is for 2022. And if we're really getting you know, big picture, really like 2023, 2024, when knock on wood, fingers crossed, all that kind of stuff that we're really back to full speed, hundred uh, percent with how teams are operating, what their budgets are, their revenue fully established within the new setup. Um, and, and just have a real sense of their long-term future. I've definitely heard people who are really optimistic about the long-term future, uh, but 2021 is a challenge, even though it could have been way more challenging. And along those lines, Ben, and we'll get into one of your recent pieces here in a second, but um, does it feel like it's even a little bit ahead of where we expected? I mean, it, it feels like every week we have these conversations with folks and we'll have a couple of people from Bowling Green on later here. Um, who say, you know, we're, we're hitting 100% and capacity anyway. Um, and that feels like earlier than I thought we were going to get there personally, but as somebody who knows the business of baseball, business minor league baseball better than anybody, does it feel like we are a little bit ahead of that expectations anyways? Yeah. You know, it varies by regions. I think teams have their own set of expectations, but big picture on, on the whole. Yeah. Um, I think, that when you start a season belatedly on May 4th and a lot of teams by June 1st or very soon after are saying we're now having our first uh, full capacity homestands. Um, like here, we're talking on June 9th and I know the Charleston River Dogs are full capacity for the first time today. And they're filling the ballpark with fans. They're doing a literal salute to fans, like items that keep you cool. Um, so teams are having some fun with it and um, getting back to full speed and I think quicker than they could have thought, just given all the variables going into the season. But the other thing is that there's a difference between full capacity and having sellout crowds. Um, I think a lot of people in this country are just are kind of desperate to get back to normal and really want to get out to the ballpark and really want to do those things. But I think when you're talking collectively, drawing the crowds that you know result in standing room only, berm seating, 7,500, 8,500, 10,000 people at a game, um, is not necessarily something that teams are getting even when they can throw open the gates and say, come on in. Um, I should study the attendance numbers and see. Uh, I think that'd be a good, uh, good project right now to see uh, once we're reached full, teams that have reached full capacity to see where they are in relation to other seasons and seeing the extent to which fans are comfortable with coming back uh, now that they actually can do so. All right, well, yeah, that, that would be interesting to look into, especially as the sample expands. The six-game series means it's, you know, some teams have quite a bit more uh, home games thus far than others. Um, but, yeah, that would definitely be interesting to check in, especially as we said, as things open up a little bit more to 100%. Um, but, Ben, as I kind of teased there a little bit, uh, you have a recent piece up on MILB.com about crooked numbers. Crooked numbers are back uh, for anybody who – used to read Ben's old columns on these. Um, Tyler and I were talking about this beforehand, like one of our favorite stuff uh, that you, you do every year. And just the fact that the minor leagues are back means we can dive into more of these. So as you were piecing this together, what were some that kind of stood out? And I guess let's start with at the low A level uh, with both Kannapolis and Fredericksburg getting off to rough starts in years in which they opened new stadiums. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, to preface this a little bit more, um, Crooked Numbers, I think I started writing it in like 2009 as an homage to Jason Stark, who wrote for the Philadelphia Inquirer when I was a kid before he went national. And I was just obsessed with uh, his full page weekly columns in the Philadelphia Inquirer that just highlighted all the weird and wacky stuff. So once I started writing about minor league baseball, I thought, you know, I'd love to do that kind of stuff for the minor leagues. And so this column has been running for a long time. There's been years where I've done it, you know, couple of months really obsessively there's been times when I've barely had the time to do it during the season because I've been on the road and whatnot and maybe just do one or two throughout the year it definitely has some variables but uh, you know kind of a weird start to this season and last week I was like hey it's a new season minor league baseball is weird what sort of oddities have happened let's have a crooked number so I didn't go wild with it but I had some fun and uh, Sam as you mentioned one of the quirkiest in a lot of ways maybe dispiriting or depressing uh starts to the season where for two low A East teams, the Annapolis Cannonballers and the Fredericksburg Nationals, who have two of the worst records in minor league baseball. And both those teams are playing at a new ballpark this year. So the two new team, the two teams in the low A East, they're playing at the new ballpark, uh, got off to horrible starts at home. And at one point in the season had a combined record of one in 27 with the Fredericksburg Nationals not even having a home win at that point. So when you think of two teams that have combined to go one in 27, a lot of those home games at their ballpark and not getting any wins at home. And every day the fans are like, we need to christen this new ballpark and the team and the front office are saying, we need to christen this new ballpark or the win and uh, collectively losing 27 to 28 games. Things are going a little better right now. Uh, checking the current standings, we have Fredericksburg at eight and twenty-three. They're kind of on fire right now, and Canapolis at four and twenty-six. Canapolis is still one and twelve at home. Uh, Fredericksburg is four and fourteen, but I believe they lost their first uh, eleven or twelve at home. So that was just kind of a weird one to highlight. Uh, just the excitement of a new stadium, but in the Lower East with Canapolis and Fredericksburg, uh, the start of the season was anything but uh, good on the uh, on-field angle and. Uh, what can you do? You have no control over these things. There is also a fantastic tweet and later video. Uh, Zach Bay Rudy, the radio voice of the Reno Aces, tweeted on May 14th, quote, Reno manager Blake Lally sets the bar for ejections in the COVID era, gets tossed and pulls his mask over his eyes while he finishes his argument with the plate umpire. Tremendous stuff. The next day, uh, the video came out. This is really, I mean, talk about accentuating the accessories of the COVID era. If you want to say that an umpire visually has not been doing his job for the night, using the mask is pretty, that was next level performance stuff. I'm very impressed by this ejection. Yeah, that was one I didn't really have to write much. I just let the tweets speak for themselves, but a manager getting ejected by taking off his COVID mask and putting it over his eyes and gesturing around wildly. Like you can't like, is this how you see the world buddy? Um, it was From a very a- socially distanced uh, gap away, we should say it wasn't it wasn't a terribly uh, dangerous thing to do with the mask. He moved the mask, and at one point actually moved the mask that was covering his eyes, his nose, and his face. So his mouth was only exposed for a moment, and he was like ten feet away from the umpire. So just to clarify for all of you, yeah, just quintessential twenty twenty one minor league baseball ejection when you use your mask as a way to troll the umpires. So I had to include that in there. I think one more I'd mention um, is a really unique cycle that happened on May 23rd. Uh, the Lakeland Flying Tigers were coming to bat in the top of the ninth, uh, winning eight to seven. And at that point, Gage Workman had had two hits. He tripled in the third inning and homered in the sixth. 
So he's coming to bat in the, in the ninth inning with two hits. But, and he was only the seventh batter of the ninth inning. But he was the seventh batter of the ninth inning, and he got a single. So now he has a single, a homer, and a triple. The Flying Tigers keep scoring, and then he comes to bat as the 16th batter in the inning and hits a double to extend the lead to 20 to 7 to cap a 12 run inning and to get the cycle. But he got the cycle by batting as the seventh and 16th person to come to the plate in the ninth inning. So uh, that's one of those things, you know, when the ninth inning started, I can guarantee you hitting for the cycle is the furthest thing from Gage Workman in everyone's mind. But to come up twice, the first time when you're the seventh bat of the inning, <laughs> and it is just insane. And I kind of love that stuff. Yeah. I can't imagine that many times in baseball history, a cycle has been achieved with two hits in the ninth inning. And even more so when you aren't due up for seven batters to start the ninth inning, but that's a pretty cool one. Um, Crooked Numbers is on MILB.com right now. You can go check it out. And this week we have a very unique interview this week interview segment i should say uh i was an observer for this interview i was on for you all but uh i just got to sit and and listen and laugh uh ben tee it up for us as we head to bowling green this week yeah tyler got to sit when this this one out and maybe that was a a good thing for him but the bowling green hot rod staged karen night uh in honor of women named karen people named karen gotten free you know it was a reference to if people are online or too online uh, it was a reference to Karen becoming kind of an online phenomenon and is sort of a symbol of a broader uh, tendency, if that makes sense. Anyhow, let's just talk to Bowling Green Hot Rods, Karen Knight, general manager, Eric Leach of the Bowling Green Hot Rods, and uh, perhaps a special guest as well. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Here on the show, before the show podcast, Sam Dykstra and I are joined by Eric Leach, the general manager for the Bowling Green Hot Rods, to talk about a promotion that the Hot Rods did last week, last Thursday, June 3rd, uh, Karen Night, in which all Karens got in free, and it was a bit of a uh, riffing on a trend or a phenomenon in pop culture where Karen has been the general term for a uh, overly assertive woman who wants to speak to the manager, I guess is uh, perhaps the best way to put it. But Eric, we'll let you talk. Uh, could you explain um, what this promotion was and, and how it came about? Yeah, so we just decided to have a little bit of fun with this because a, a local business here uh, actually on their social media called a customer a Karen. And it was uh, some pretty wicked backlash. And I started thinking, how did this ever come about? Karen's get a bad rap. And I don't know where the term Karen came from. 
And so we decided to host Karen night, poke a little bit of fun at the syndrome of Karen, but also defending Karen saying, you guys get a bad rap. Uh, honestly, it should have been Kate uh, after Kate plus eight because she was the original Karen, I think. And so we decided all Karens get in free. We made buttons for them that said, my name is Karen, but I'm not a real Karen. And uh, just had a, some cheeky fun with the whole night and promotion. Well, uh, like a very, very much like a typical minor league baseball team, uh, you know, playing both sides of the fence, making sure you're uh, not alienating anyone. Um, so when you did the promotion, uh, did Karen's- Hi, Hi excuse little- me. Hi. Oh, Hi. Geez. Speaking of being alienated, um, no one told me about what time any call was starting. So I had to go call Zoom manager to get how to find out how I could join this um this video chat. Um, so yeah, I feel a little alienated. But I, if you would address all Karen questions to me, my name is Karen, and I um would appreciate if you spell it right wherever this goes. It's C A R Y N. Okay, thank you. Uh, Karen. Uh- I- I think, Karen, the last time I saw you, you were shaking your tail feathers on the way out because your free ticket and free popcorn weren't enough. Listen, you know what? Uh, I mean, you might be the manager, but I just, I felt very um, disrespected because I'm a very loyal customer. And I just, do you treat all customers that way? I don't know. Minor League Baseball, do they treat that customers that way? Hello. I mean, I am, I'm at every game. I cheer the loudest. I buy all the things. And I just want a little respect. That's all I'm asking for. Well, Karen, now that you're here and making your presence known, um, you know, as Eric just said, you know, he was trying to celebrate Karen's as well, and uh, they got in free. So this must have felt great to have a night in your honor. You know, I feel like every night should be in my honor, but I guess I'll take once a year, I guess, other than my birthday or like Valentine's Day or like Mother's Day or New Year's Day, whatever. But um, I did appreciate getting in free, any spelling, you know, so I was very concerned that I would not get in for free because K-A-R-E-N, whatever, but I-M-C-A-R-Y-N, we all got in for free. I did get a free popcorn. I really wanted a free corn dog, but that, whatever. I got a free popcorn and I did get to go to the complaint booth that we had set up to talk to our manager, uh, Mr. Leach. I talked to the assistant manager, Kyle Walls, and uh, I did feel like I got a lot off my chest, but I, I was, I guess I felt like it was a fine night. Yeah, it was a great time, I guess. Well, now I want to make it very clear that Benjamin Hill is the manager of this podcast, um, so please direct all your complaints <laughs> to him. But uh, Eric- Thank you. Thank you. I will. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's at Ben's Biz on Twitter. Be sure to add him and all your complaints. Oh, for but- sure. Yes, because I will- don't worry, I will call him out if I don't like a tweet. <laughs> but Karen, like how many of your fellow Karens did you meet? Was it like uh, a family reunion in that way? Like how many of you were there at the ballpark that night? Let me tell you, there are a lot of Karens at the ballpark. I can't say how many numbers because they, I, everyone just came up to me. And they're like, my name is Karen. My name is Karen. So we were all there. But I have to say, there was this one Karen came up to me and she was like, my name is Karen. And she literally was the saint of the earth, sweet as can be. And that's why we had a night like that night because she needs to be recognized as how precious as she is. And I may have attitude. She did not have attitude. So I guess that whatever, you know, I had enough attitude for the both of us. 
but she was a sweet angel. But I met a lot of Karens. None of none that were as important as I was, but you know, whatever. And, and Eric, as the manager who's accepting all these complaints or had the booth open, um, what was the experience like from your end? Uh, of how many complaints were you getting personally as the manager? You know, we got a ton of complaints, but a lot of it was in good fun. Like uh, I had people come up and go, this popcorn is too buttery. Uh, you know, uh, those types of things. I did have a few legit complaints. Uh, I had somebody tell me that we're not a real stadium because we don't serve bratwurst. Uh, and I explained to them that we used to serve bratwurst and they didn't sell. So we took them off the menu and we repeated that process a couple of times. And ultimately they're no longer uh, there, but most of the complaints were in good fun. People wanting to take pictures because I had a shirt on that said, I'm a manager, be gentle, um, running special promotions on the visiting team instead of uh, the ice cold batter of the game. It was the Karen batter of the game. So yes, they did strike out. So everybody won free uh, Dairy Queen blizzards and uh, just kind of ran that whole promotion throughout the evening. So now that you've done Karen night, um... Are there any plans to honor anyone else, uh, any other notable names in American culture or do the Karens really stand out and, and they're the ones who deserve the attention? Yeah. No one Karen's is as great really... as Karens. No one is as great as Karens, but whatever. You go, Eric, you, you tell them, I, but I don't think anyone's as important as me, but go ahead. So no more Karen nights, but we are going to honor some cultural phenomenons like, uh, you know, tomorrow night is beard night. Uh, best beards, worst beards. Uh, we have jorts night coming in up for the wonderful jean shorts. And of course, later on this summer, we're going to have Kentucky waterfall night honoring mullets, the fine thing that is uh, awesome about our state of Kentucky. So we're going to have mullet competitions. So really Thursday night on the dollar beers, we're trying to have a lot of fun with the various promotions and come up with the cultural phenomenons. Uh, Karen just really seemed to uh, hit a chord, especially on social media, and the engagements and impressions were uh, awesome. And uh, Karen, I, I'm not sure if this is maybe the final question in the interview, but I, I do want to make sure you get the last word. Is there anything yes. uh, you want to add to what Eric said there? Well, as much as I love Karen Knight, and I love everything being all about me, I do feel like i got to take a step back and be humble. Um, my husband has a beard, so I would like him to get recognized. He also has a mullet, so I want him to be recognized. I have a great pair of jeans shorts that, yes, they'll be great. We've got a lot of fun. We have a lot of fun here, and I have a ball, and we've got a great team. But, yes, I, um, I appreciate the questions. I mean, I feel like you could have asked me a whole lot more. I didn't get enough screen time because, obviously, I was late to this ball game. <laughs> Pun intended. Um, but yes, it was a great time. We always have a good time. And, and if anybody has anything to say, they can come talk to me. Thank you. Well, Karen, uh, thank you very much for uh, coming on. Eric, thank you very much. Uh, Thanks, guys. Appreciate for it. telling us about Karen Knight. So much Knight. for your love and, and affection. Thank you. Yeah, it seems like everyone's here. Good vibes, good energy. And, uh, you know, we're just here to document the most important minor league promotions of the day. And we think this is certainly one of them. And Looking forward to what's coming up next. So thank you very much uh, for being here, both of you. Thanks, thank you. Everyone. I gotta go get my hair dyed, so I gotta go. Okay. Bye, Karen. Bye, Eric. Bye. See you guys. Thank you. Goodbye. Yes, goodbye. <laughs> Big thanks to the Bowling Green Hot Rods uh, and Karen herself for joining the show today. That was something.
that was that was something. I mean, we knew that she was going to appear, but just to take you guys a little bit behind the curtain, um, here on Zoom, as many of you know, because you've gone through this same stuff that we have, uh, you can hide your video. You can choose not to be on video. So we knew that Ashley Wilson, she is the corporate marketing manager of the Bowling Green Hot Rods, playing the role of Karen, both on our podcast and at the stadium in Bowling Green. Award winning. Yeah. Or at we least make award up an contending. award to give to her. Yeah. yeah that, she can get a Milby for best Karen impersonation on a minor league baseball podcast. There we go. We can do that. Not a whole lot of contenders, but yeah. Um, but yeah, she was she was off screen and we thought, okay, she'll chime in whenever, whenever she's ready. And then she literally just turned on her screen to start yelling at Ben. Amazing hair. Perfect. Uh, it was, yeah, it was all fantastic. It was all, I, I, I wanted that to, um, you know, I, I wanted something like that to happen, but the way it went down was just perfect. It was great. And Kudos uh, to Eric and Ashley for joining us. Yeah, time. absolutely. And that was why when we signed on and I learned that they were both going to be on, I was like, wow, five person segment. I don't want to like overwhelm people. So I'm just going to observe and pretend like I'm a real podcast producer and uh i'll make notes if we need to edit or anything but then i just got to sit and laugh which was even, <laughs> even more into that we should have had you off mute yeah no, just sitting and laughing just made you the laugh track yeah. <laughs> oh man so with that let's move into three strikes for this week's episode of the show before the show podcast as we're uh talking uh some prospect movement and moving and shaking into uh the month of june uh, i don't think that's really how it is um let's kick it off with a uh, a topic that sam has described as pop-up prospects so i assume that means the guys who hit the most pop-ups sam just kidding yeah. uh no guys who've kind of come out of nowhere give us uh give us a lowdown on some prospects who have sort of cropped up that maybe you weren't expecting coming into this year well, now I'm furiously xing out all the tabs I had on batted ball data about pop-ups. So I guess we'll give go in your the, direction. Give us the weakest pop-up players <laughs> across minor league baseball. Yeah, no, they, it, Tyler's right. This is this is what I want this segment to be on because we are, as we we saw said last week, we were a month in. Now we are about five weeks in to the minor league season. Uh, and is that a big enough sample to say guys are breaking out? Not quite, but guys are certainly popping up. They are coming up on our radars. Uh, more than ever. Um, and I won't say necessarily guys outside of top thirties or something like that, but these are guys who we all were aware of, but now all of a sudden are becoming must follows or even borderline top 100 prospects in a, in a few cases. The one I want to point out first is Gabriel Moreno of the Toronto Blue Jays system. Uh, he's currently the number seven prospect for the Blue Jays uh, seen coming into this year as a promising hitter from the right side. He's five foot 11. So he's not exactly a huge catcher. Uh, but he is a, a decent catcher known for an above average arm, uh, has some power, but has really taken off in pretty much all aspects of his offensive game uh, so far here in 2021. He is only 21 years old. Uh, he will be 21 for the entire season. So going to double A, a little young for that level. Uh, but at a time when we thought Austin Martin or Jordan Groshans was going to be the star of that Fisher Cats team, it has been Gabriel Moreno. Uh, so far through 21 games, as of recording time, he's hitting 369 with a 427 OBP, a slugging percentage of 595. He's got four homers in those 21 games, um, striking out 20 times, walking seven. So the numbers aren't quite there yet, but he's normally at the lower level, somebody who doesn't strike out a ton, uh, the strikeout rates out a little bit this year, but the power that he is putting behind Paul is incredible. And I'll point you to a highlight 
that the fish cats shared in which if you've ever watched a game in new hampshire they have a hotel beyond the left field fence when vladimir guerrero jr was coming up there was a big deal made out of the fact that he homered to the hotel well now gabrielle moreno has done it and i believe he's the first since vlad jr at least the first fisher cat since vlad jr to do that that is um, correct so, they tweeted the other day that he was the first right so it, it, that just kind of puts you or gives you an idea of the power he is showing off. Um, he, he is not Vlad Jr. as a hitter. He's not going to be an 80 overall hit tool. Uh, but the power could be above average to plus. We'll see how that's going to come across. Uh, I know the, the Blue Jays were pretty high on him coming into the year. Again, number seven. But now he could jump over a few of those guys. And, uh, you know, Alejandro Kirk is injured right now. Moreno could be the, the catching prospect of the future and leap over Kirk for that role. Uh, so keeping a close eye on him for sure. Another one I want to point out real quick, uh, who was once on this show is Michael Harris of the Atlanta uh, Braves system. Michael Harris is second. Somebody who seemed tooled up. He's got a good backstory. 2019 third round pick out of Georgia. Local kid. Uh, really likes the Braves. I, I implore you to go back and listen to our segment with him. But that was before he really blew up. Um, and in part because the Braves took him to Alt-site last year. They used him a, a bunch. They saw something in him, and that's coming across this year as well. He's batting 352, uh, not walking much. He's got an OBP of 372, but the slugging percentage is certainly there at 500. He's got three homers, nine stolen bases in 27 games. Uh, we already knew him, of him as a plus runner with a cannon for an arm in the outfield. If he's starting to put together something offensively as well, be a little bit more of a five-tool potential player. Uh, he came into the year ranked number 10 in the Brave system, but easily, by the time we do a re-rank, could be in the top five, uh, which is saying something for that system uh, for sure. So Michael Harris coming on strong, Gabriel Moreno. If you guys aren't following these guys already, I highly recommend it. Um, these guys could be top 100 prospects very soon, or you know, if, if they can keep this up, could be even more prominent than that. Uh, by the end of the 2021 season. Strike two this week. Always helps when you uh, unmute your microphone. Usually a good thing for podcast purposes. Uh, Jackson Coar is a late, uh, not late in terms, he's one of the latest entrants, I should say, into uh, Major League Baseball after uh, getting the summon to the big leagues with the Kansas City Royals organization. Uh, Jackson Coar, who was a first round pick in 2018, number 33 overall out of that absurdly talented uh, University of Florida pitching staff, made his Major League debut. Didn't go great uh, in his big league debut in his first start for Kansas City going uh, on the road at the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Two-thirds of an inning, three hits, four runs. He walked a couple, didn't strike out anybody. But uh, the talent obviously is there. The Royals have this group of prospects that continues to make the climb. Uh, and we're actually going to talk about one of them coming up uh, in our next topic here as well. But he's the number four prospect in that system. The third among the top four who are pitchers, Daniel Lynch, the lefty, Asa Lacey, the lefty, and uh, Coar, the right-hander, making his big league debut. Sam, obviously not a lot to take away from that first one. Kind of rough, but... A lot of guys struggle in their major league debuts. Um, tell us about just the thought process on where he is right now and being at the major league level, the big uh, 6'5", 200-pound righty uh, out of the University of Florida. Yeah, and, and the reason why we're talking about him is he is the number 97 overall prospect. Um, so he is a top 100 talent. Somebody who jumped into that as graduations happened but had the potential and was 
showing like really, really promising stuff at AAA Omaha. I know if you watched that Kansas City start uh, for his debut, you might not necessarily have seen it. Uh, again, Tyler went through the line there, and I know he mixed in a couple wild pitches, which very clearly to me made it look like he was nervous, which is understandable. Um, it's it's obviously not what you want. You want guys coming up when they're ready and fully integrated into the team and, and can take off running. But um, I, I think things can certainly smooth out for him. And the, the, the big standout for me is always going to be his changeup. Uh, coming into the year, it got plus-plus grades, which is not something you normally see from a changeup. Uh, it fades really well. It pairs really well with his fastball. Uh, it's, it's very difficult for both right-handers and left-handers uh, to pick up, which was really interesting to me because coming into uh, that start for Kansas City, lefties were only hitting 087 against him at the AAA level. Uh, that's because of the changeup. We, we talk about splits a lot, righties, lefties. Um, usually why lefties do a little bit better against right-handed pitchers is because they can pick up the breaking stuff, but they don't necessarily pick up the changeup well. So that's why we talk about it as so important for any pitcher. You need that, that pitcher to go against opposite side hitting. Uh, he has it. He definitely has it. Uh, the reason why he has been so dominant this year at AAA, and again, coming into that start, he had a 0.85 ERA, a 165 batting average against. Uh, he struck out 41 batters in 31 and two-thirds innings. It was dominant stuff. You could make a case he was the most successful AAA pitcher to start the year. Uh, but a reason why he was deemed major league ready was because his curveball had really taken off, and the Royals felt like that was a successful third pitch for him. Um, the velocity has been there. I've seen him hit 98 in starts, uh, early in starts, late in starts. Uh, so the the fastball is obviously plus. The changeup, like I said, is plus plus. And if the curveball can be above average, and there was one start he had against Iowa uh, where I believe he struck out 10, that curveball was working pretty well. He got a lot of swings and misses on that. Uh, if he can find that pitch at the top level, it's comfortably a number three, number four starter. Um, but as we saw last week, like he just needs to get the command of that stuff down. He needs to shake out the nerves and show what he did at Omaha because the stuff is going to play. Uh, it really is. And I know the Royals have been a little bit shaky the last two years in terms of bringing guys up and, and sometimes seeing them succeed in the case of Brady Singer, sometimes not seeing them succeed in the case of Daniel Lynch. Daniel Lynch is back down at Omaha now. Uh, Chris Bubich is kind of on both sides of that. He, he struggled a little bit last year then was going to open the year in the minors. Now he's back in the majors, seems to be figuring things out a little bit, but even he gave up uh, that massive homer to Shohei Otani uh, just on Tuesday night. So they, it, it, this Royals uh, system right now is a perfect example of development is not linear. The pieces are certainly there. And one thing I'll point out about Jackson Quar as well is that he is, I believe, the fourth uh, pitcher taken in the 2018 draft. The Royals famously took – five college starters at the top of their draft. They went very heavy on pitching. It was all from the college level. Uh, Singer, who I mentioned, Bubich, Lynch, now uh, Kawar, all of those guys were four of the top five picks from the 2018 draft. The fact that they have all made their major league debuts uh, is a credit to the Royal scouting staff. It's a credit to the development uh, and getting those guys ready. Now they need them to stick uh, because that is a potential rotation. There's still some things they got to figure out there, obviously, but uh, Kawar sliding in there and getting his chance and getting his look at a time where, you know, the, the Royals were kind of circled as maybe a surprise team coming into the year. They've been about 500 
if they're going to get over that hump and really compete in the AL Central, especially in a year in which the Twins are really down, uh, they're going to need guys like Kawar to really come up and, and show what they did in the minors. So rough start here. I expect him to get a little bit more of a leash, uh, get a few more starts like Lynch did. Uh, but trust me, the pieces are there. And I think Jackson Kawar could be an effective major league starter this season. I like that description that they are very much the emblematic organization right now of development not being linear because I think so many people just assume once guys get to the major leagues, oh, that's it, they're polished, they should be, you know, we're seeing it right now with Jared Kellenick as well, um, was a tremendously talented young prospect who was probably going to be a very good major league player, but really has struggled so far this season. He's 21 years old. So for some of these guys, there are some things you go up, you get that experience at the major league level, then you're back down uh, and you start to work on how you can conquer those things once you get back to the big league level. So uh, another step in that direction for the Kansas City Royals organization as well. Final topic of this week's three strikes last night we're recording this on wednesday the 9th last night there was a very strange moment in uh double a northwest arkansas's win over frisco bobby witt jr the top prospect in that royals organization hammered what looked to be his second home run of the night and went into his trademark shuffle as he came across home plate and then uh, evidently missed the plate and was ruled out on appeal. He obliterated this home run. It cleared the berm in left center. Uh, it cleared a, a little fence out there and went on to, I couldn't, t- I wrote in the story that it was a walkway, maybe like part of a playground. I don't really know what it was. There were a bunch of kids running around. It's like a dirt area. Um, but it was a no doubter in every sense of the word except for the fact that Bobby Wood Jr. uh, was ruled not to have touched home plate. Now, he claims that he did touch home plate. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, Kansas City's football hero, the uh, star of a a Super Bowl champion a couple years ago, uh, he even tweeted about that play yesterday and said, am I missing something here? Of course, Patrick Mahomes, his father was a major leaguer and a guy who probably could have been in the big leagues as a a baseball player himself. Um, There was a whole lot of gnashing of teeth on social media last night over this. Uh, I wrote the story. I will say there is not, from what I would glean, definitive evidence that Bobby Wood Jr. missed home plate, except for the fact of two things. One, home plate umpire and Frisco's catcher were both staring down the plate when Bobby Wood Jr. came across. Secondly, Bobby Wood Jr., as he crosses home plate, definitely hesitates, flinches, looks back, and tries to drag his right foot, his back foot, across the plate as he comes across doing that shuffle. Whether or not he touched the plate, we'll probably never know. Uh, unless Frisco releases, you know, some some different uh, footage confirming things like a, like a Bigfoot sighting uh, from, you know, somebody shooting on a camera phone up in the the area right behind the plate. I don't know. But it brings us to our topic of conversation for today, which is... Should a home run count once it just goes over the wall? Do you should, I mean, if you'd miss all the bases, it's not as though you're like hustling to get in and you beat a throw and, oh, well, it turns out this guy missed third. So he's out on appeal. I mean, Bobby Wood Jr. hit that ball an estimated 430 feet, according to Northwest Arkansas. And because of the two inches maybe between his spike and the, uh, the perimeter of the plate, he was ruled out. Your thoughts on this, Sam? Um, I hear we're getting into unwritten rules territory. Oh, we are. I know. Which is the perfect, uh, reaction to that, Tyler. That, that's very good because I, I, <laughs> I, 
I want to approach that very cautiously because I know we 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 would uh, somebody get we, Tony Larusa out here for us. Yeah, we we'd open up a lot of doors here that I don't necessarily want to open because I think if we say it shouldn't matter, then all of a sudden we're getting into kind of like the intentional walk scenario now, where it's just hold up four and you know take your base and, right. and don't go through the ceremony of throwing all four pitches, which has their reasons. I I am totally fine with the way way we do it now with intentional walks. Um, home runs running around the bases is ceremonious ceremonial. Um, the only reason we do it is because it's fun to see these guys celebrate and go around and, and essentially receive their flowers in a way. Um, and we get to play the music and it, it allows us to stay in that moment for a little while. So I don't want to open up the door of it doesn't like we shouldn't touch all the bases. It doesn't matter. Uh, because then all of a sudden we're just saying like hit it and walk back to the dugout, which is less fun unless you're like hitting it, running into the dugout and celebrating with all your, or like all your t- teammates come out and celebrate with you on home plate, which I'm sure uh, a lot of people would not want to see, especially the opposing catcher. But um, so I don't want to say that, but what we do kind of get into a territory here of is I want them to run around and I want nobody to care if they touch any of the bases. As long as they're not like cutting off third base entirely <laughs> or, you know, just like going to third or doing what, who was uh, Larry Walker, the, the cut across the infield, although he was retreating on a fly out. Yeah. That was a very no, I'm famous thinking story of, when Larry Walker was, uh, was elected to the hall of fame. Uh, this is going to kill me now. Who was the Mets player who hit the walk off, but didn't end up finishing rounding the bases because. Oh, right. Was that Robin Ventura? For some reason, that's that's coming up in my head. Um, anyways, I, I'll think about it later. And I'm, I'm sure you're all yelling into your podcast devices of choice. But anyways, I don't want to get into that territory. But I want people to – I don't want the catcher and umpire to just be staring down. And like, you, Tyler, that the way you introduced this was perfect, of hitting a 400-plus home run uh, and it coming down to two inches. I don't think that's – Fair. I don't think that's the letter of the rule. I don't think that's why it's in place. Uh, it's more, like I said, so guys don't completely cut off bases and stuff like that. But uh, watching the video, I, I can't tell if he touched home. I know everybody else is trying to screenshot stuff. Like if you can tell <laughs> oh, it's like whether somebody touched film. something from a basically dirt yeah, angle. From a ground level camera. Yeah, then you have better eyes than I do. Uh, I, and I will take the suggestion of the umpire who again is looking at it straight. He was standing right on top of the play. And one thing I'll bring up too, that I'm sure you saw on social media, a lot of people are saying like, Oh, well he cleaned off the plate right afterwards. So it's very yeah. clear that he touched it. That doesn't I'm mean sorry. Anything. Does you, you do realize you can kick dirt and right. not touch a thing. And nobody's ever seen an umpire clean a plate before umpires clean plates all the time. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I did not buy that argument. That's not evidence. I, I didn't get that at all. Um, I will say, do I have the floor now for my yes, take? Yes, yes. My, my, my closing argument is just like, let's continue to round the bases. Don't make bases, a big deal if, but don't like, let's not pay attention to see if the guy try does or does not or misses by half an inch. I, that I, that's not important. Okay, I will say, uh, ordinarily, I'm very much of the new school and all that. I'm going to be a curmudgeon. Yes, you have to touch all the bases. What is this? How easy is that? 
It's the, there's nobody throwing the ball in to try to get you. You have no, you can do the Sammy Sosa thing where you stutter step 18 times before you touch the bat. It's the easiest thing in baseball to touch the base after you hit a home run. Come on. Um, yeah. I mean, like, I, I don't know. Is it dumb that Bobby Wood Jr. was ruled to have tripled on a ball that he hit 430 feet? Yeah. But like, I love dumb baseball stuff. <laughs> it's a fun, dumb baseball thing. And I absolutely love it. Absolutely. You have to touch all the bases and home plate. What are, really what are the odds that Bobby Wood Jr. going forward is just going to like hop on the base? Yeah. And yeah. like do a pirouette or something. Especially if he has that umpire again, I would yeah. imagine. Um, or anytime this series. Right, exactly. If he hits another one tonight, I would imagine that'll be uh, that'll be <laughs> part of it. Um, I, our uh, our night editor Paige Schechter, to her credit, she said, um, "I think after his first home run, she was like Nostradamus. She said, I feel like he's going to have a problem at that point, at some point, with that shuffle across home plate. Uh, maybe she said it after the second one because he hit his first one. I think just before my shift had started for the night. But um, sure enough, he did, and it just like." I don't know. It's so easy. And to me, like he knew that he, if, if not missed it, he knew that he barely grazed it because you can see in the replay, he looks back, he flinches and he tries to drag his back foot over it too. At that point, just stop and go back and tag it. Just tap the plate. You're fine. Um, to be honest, like I give, I give credit to Frisco. I give credit to Frisco's catcher for being right on top of that. And also, I also give credit to Frisco's catcher and home plate umpire for not immediately doing what I would do, which is the second he goes across without touching, I would have been like, he didn't touch it! Oh, I didn't touch the plate! And then that would have alerted him to just go back and touch the plate. So I admire the poker faces as well. <laughs> um, Bobby Wood Jr. is going to be fine. He is an unbelievably great young player. Uh, he's been fantastic over the last two and a half weeks or so now. He'll be fine. This will be a dumb footnote that nobody remembers from his minor league. Ah, uh, footnote. But, uh, ah! <laughs> Sorry. One thing we should point out too real quick is, I don't know if, I can't remember when we started this segment if you pointed it out, but Key Brian Hayes. Yeah, another top ten overall prospect had the same issue in first base. Right. It's just funny that that happened on the same night. This is not like some crazy thing that's sweeping through baseball. Right, um, nothing no, not going around right now. But right. That, I think it's just in the history of the game, funny things are going to happen. The fact that we got two on the same night is just a crazy coincidence. But I'm sure everybody's going to have something uh, attached to their bulletin board in every clubhouse. Make sure you touch the bases. Um, I, I will say, you know especially in a circumstance where like, if you're trying to hustle to get an extra base or you're going first to third, or, um, you know, you're trying to score from second on a shallow ball or whatever, and you get your footwork mixed up and miss a bag. We've all seen that happen, but not touching a bag on a home run or not touching the plate on a home run. Like, eh. Come on. One of the most famous home runs of all time when Mark McGuire hit his 62nd home run in 1998, he missed first and went back and touched it. And Joe Buck's call was touch first, Mark. You're the new single season home run king. So like it happens, but like, just go back and touch it. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. You have to touch all the bases. I'm not giving that up. The four balls on the intentional walk, like, man, whatever. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not giving that up. I'm not giving it up. Plus I only got to do three home run trots in my entire life. So for all of you who can just, you know, flick your wrist and hit it 430 feet, you, you got to touch all the bags. For those of us who could never do that, you have to do it. At least we can do that. Right. And I just want to say real quick, because I did just don't confirm this. It was Robin Ventura. Okay. Good to know. The Grand Slam single in the 99 NLCS good was to Robin know. Ventura. I feel much um, better about this. 
that is, uh, yeah, that is very good. Um, it's also a similar play to uh, one of the most famous named plays in all of baseball, which is Merkel's boner uh, back on September 23rd of 1908, which uh, was a base running mistake by New York Giants rookie Fred Merkel, um, who missed a bag, if I remember correctly, and uh, ended up, I think he was uh, cutting around, but I don't remember exactly what happened with Merkel's motor, but you can go read the, the story on Merkel's motor. But Mr. Bag uh, was ruled out on um, essentially on a, oh, okay, Merkel advancing from first base uh, when a, a, a game winning run would have scored saw fans coming onto the playing field and turned back to the dugout without ever touching second. Uh, and the play then resulted in him being a force out. So the game winning run never scored. Uh, and the giants ended up having to replay that game and uh, lost, I believe to the Chicago Cubs. Anyway, you can go read on it. It's a very fascinating story. And poor Fred Merkel never lived that down. Um, that actually happened in the minors a couple of years ago. Yeah, too. right. Exactly. Uh, Great Lakes uh, had that happen uh, against Lansing. Did I write that story? I feel like maybe I wrote that story. No, Jake Siner wrote that story. Oh, Jake Siner. R.I.P. Jake. Loons win in Merkel-esque fashion. Now with the the Associated Press. MILB.com story. Uh, Yeah, it was uh, Santiago Nessie uh, had watched his teammate hit a ball, I think, to center field. Um, noticed that his teammate was going to score from third and immediately turned to the dugout and celebrated with his teammates, forgetting that he had to step on second. Very strange. That was, uh, yeah, actually the year before I started with, uh, with MILB.com looking back on it now, July 1st, 2013. So, um, poor, poor Fred Merkel, whose uh, <laughs> Wikipedia page lists him as Carl Frederick Rudolph Merkel also documented as Frederick Charles Merkel and nicknamed bonehead. <laughs> Oh, an American no. first baseman in Major League Baseball from 1907 to 1926. And that was his very first year. He was still a teenager on September 23rd of 1908 when he made that play and he was known as Bonehead for the rest of his life. Oh, poor guy. Bobby I mean, Wood Jr. is not going to be the same. Keep Ryan no. A is not going to be the same for either of you guys. You'll be fine. No, but like 1907 to 1926, like that's a good life in your career. career. And his very first season, his rookie year. Oh, that poor guy. What a bummer. What a bummer for old Bonehead. All right. Well, uh, we'll get to wrap this one up as we uh, say goodbye from Three Stakes. We'll, uh, we'll wrap it up next. this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of ghosts of the miners now here's your correspondent and host joshua jackson of the miners in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair one belongs to the realm of memory the others to fantasy in last week's segment i asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist a the melbourne citrus squeezers b the amsterdam rug makers 
C. The Moscow Millers. Every fiber of my being knows they rolled out the red carpet for the Rugmakers in old Amsterdam, New York, a once industrial burg just a stitch outside Schenectady. <laughs> Catcher manager Admiral Martin was at the helm when Amsterdam took first place in its debut Canadian American League season of 1938, but the Admiral's club was sunk in the playoffs. The Rugmakers finished first again the next year, but once more came undone in the postseason. In 1940, though, led by slugging third sacker Paul Badgett and outfielder-slash-skipper Eddie Sawyer, the Yankees-affiliated Rugmakers pulled the whatchamacallit out from under the competition in the playoffs for their first and only title. That's okay, the Rugmakers really tied the league together for eight more seasons. Hey, careful, man! There's a beverage here, huh? Amsterdam began the magic carpet ride careers of Vic Rashi and Lou Burdett one-time rug makers who combined to weave together 335 wins in the major leagues. But on Halloween 1951, the Sporting News reported that the Yankees had lost $60,000 vacuuming up expenses for the rug makers over the previous two years. The financiers were floored by the figures, and the final thread was pulled from the rug makers. And that about covers it for the Amsterdam rug makers, who spent more time on the ceiling than underfoot in the Can-Am League. <laughs> so now, let's dip into the waters of next week's question. Idiot! Which of these aquatic-oriented clubs sank or swam in the minors? A. The Woods Hole Deep Divers. B. The Miramar Beach Beaches. C. The Green Bay Bays. Hope floats, and you're sure to get the answer if you tune in to next week's edition of Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill has insulted Clifford Odets, and he's getting red in the face. <laughs> segment of this week's episode of the show before the show milb.tv is your place for all the best and brightest in minor league baseball sam what are you watching on milb tv this week i mean i'm gonna go the obvious route um which is to say northwest arkansas is playing frisco uh that bobby wood jr game was obviously the first game of a six game series so things are gonna get real interesting down there if everybody's gonna be watching everybody touch every base going forward um, but you're going to want to watch Bobby Wood Jr. because he could have another two-homer game. It's certainly possible. Uh, but also Nick Prado on that Royals team. Didn't bring him up during the pop-up prospect section. Certainly could have. Uh, I know coming into the season, covering the Royals a little bit, they were really high on, on some of the changes he made last year, uh, you know, coming off the alt site and instructs and all that, um, with the way he was starting to elevate the ball more, make a, little, make a few adjustments, especially when it came to his approach. And we're seeing that come through right now. Wit and Prado, and I'll even throw in MJ Melendez. Uh, those three guys are as good as prospects as you're going to find on a double A team. They're all grouped together. Um, so seeing those guys tee off against Frisco should certainly be exciting. But yeah, you're mostly going to want to tune in to just any homer in that series. Everybody's going to be forensically looking at how they touch the bases. So you're going to want to tune in for that drama. Uh, Tyler, what do you got your eye on? I'm going to Richmond, Virginia. I'm not literally going to Richmond, Virginia, but for my MILB TV pick, I'm going to Richmond, Virginia, where the uh, Flying Squirrels will be home to take on the Harrisburg Senators. Uh, tonight, we're recording this on Wednesday, uh, so unfortunately you'll hear it after this, but tonight their promo is Salute to Dogs with Jobs. 
but it's, oh. you know, it's like service dogs. I thought it was like, oh, this dog works at the local car wash. And I thought that'd be super cool, but uh, it's not. But the reason I am picking the Richmond Flying Squirrels is because third ranked San Francisco Giants prospect Elliot Ramos has been really good for them, especially of late 288, 373, 441 is slash line uh, in 29 games with double a Richmond Elliot Ramos feels like we've been talking about him forever. He's still just 21 years old. Uh, really, really good young prospect in that system. Richmond will be home to take on Harrisburg for the rest of the week. If you watch the Friday game, Richmond will be dressed up in their Copa identity. Uh, our Diaz Voladores, the flying squirrels. Uh, and then coming up on Saturday, that's Friday. Did I say Saturday? Friday is Copa. Saturday is fifties and sixties throwback night with a fullback Jersey auction. And now I'm just really excited to see what the fullback jersey looks like. I was going to say, have you seen those? I really actually like the hats. Okay. Um, Well, now I have to look. The hats are really nice. They look, to describe them for all of you listening to this audio podcast, uh, it's it's an R, but like in in the R is the state of Virginia. state of Virginia. Which if I had closer Richmond ties, my cousin once lived there. So that's as close as I'm going to get. And I visited and it's a very pleasant city. Oh, I very much uh, like this. Yeah, but the, it's a great faux back hat, I got to say. It is. Yeah, this is great. I know they've used that logo before, um, but having it on that clean red hat with the with this jersey, I'm, I'm digging it. Um, so that's what's coming up this weekend in Richmond. You can check out Elliot Ramos and the rest of the Flying Squirrels and the Harrisburg Senators on uh, MILB.TV. So that'll do it for this week's episode of the show. Before the show, you can get in touch. Podcast at MILB.com. You can find us on Twitter. Sam is at Sam Dykstra, MILB. Benjamin Hill is at Ben's Biz. And I am at Tyler Mon. And for Sam and Ben, I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next week.